I'd like to take this opportunity to put a few things straight. Right, hello everyone, Dave here. Now, before we start this episode of Sustainababble, I have to humbly apologise. All is making me do an apology, because uh, I nosed up some of the audio in a few places. It's not recorded properly. I mean, it sounds all right, but it's a little bit kind of scritchy-scratchy in a few places, a bit distorty. Hopefully, uh, won't spoil your enjoyment. It's mostly towards the end, and it's mostly the bits where me and old bang on anyway. You can hear all our guests pretty much okay. So, sorry about that. Uh, stick with it. It's a brilliant episode, if we say so ourselves. And uh, love you very much and enjoy the episode. Okay, bye. No, not bye. Hello. Well, whatever. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hello, Dave! Hello, Ollie! Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Sustainababble 116. 116. Welcome yourself to Sustainababble, you cheeky little chipmunk. We are your friendly little podcast all about the environment, people and the planet, and why, despite everything being nosed and not happening fast enough, we or can still... happening too fast. We can still quite. We can still have a little chuckle about it every now and then. Coming to you live from the middle of London's interminable heatwave, from the mayor's bollock. <laughs> the mayor's bollock. That is right. Yes, we are on the balcony of City Hall, which is where the mayor works in London, staring at London Town, and we're here because there is a big old solar shindig going on. Solar industry types are here having a shindig, talking about how great solar is. So we've come to talk to them to ask them. Well. Searching questions. Yeah, like how come there's not more bloody solar everywhere? And could you stop having a shindig for a minute and put more bloody solar everywhere, please? <laughs> now, you may remember back in episode 21 of your friendly weekly environment podcast, we talked all about the what looked like imminent demise of the UK solar industry because the government had gnawed it. That's um, right. That was when we were, we were off for the summer. And when we came back, the government had gnawed everything including solar. So we thought, uh, well, given that was three years ago uh, and we were invited to a party anyway, uh, let's go and ask all these people who still work in a thing called the solar industry what it is and whether or not it has been nosed and what the future is for solar. So we are going to ask searching questions. So we're going to talk to some people involved in community-scale solar, the uh, C episode where we talk about community energy, community energy, 94. Um, We're going to hopefully talk to some people who do some of the biggest stuff. We're going to talk to some people who know a lot about the policy and talk to the government about what they're doing wrong about the policy. Uh, We're going to talk to some people who have been involved in solar since before solar wasn't really a thing, um, which is quite exciting. Solar's Uh, always been a thing, mate. Well, you know what I mean. (laughs) Since people were making square bits of stuff to turn the sun into electricity. So hopefully we'll get a range of perspectives um, and try to get a bit of a picture of whether the future is bright or whether the future is a bit dull and muggy, or whether the future is a kind of coal-infused, fusty, lung-coffee-uppy horribleness. Well, just the usual disclaimer, and another one, the usual disclaimer being that we do work for environment charities. We've, we're here with our environment charities' name badges on, aren't we? Yeah. yeah, yeah. sorry about that. But these, um. are, <laughs> yeah. but these are very much our own views and the views of the people we will talk to, all of whom we shall introduce. So if you've got any beef with me or Ol, take it up with us, or any beef with them, take it up with them, but not for anyone for whom we work. And the other disclaimer being, Ooh. we are outside, yes. it's a bit windy, yes. it's a bit aeroplane and there might be a massive thunderstorm or similar. So sorry for any background noise. Put up with it. Shut up. 
um, get on with it. Deal with it. Climate change. Right. Hi, so uh, my name is Syed Ahmed. I run a uh, research and lobbying organisation called Energy for London. And uh, I was recently asked by the mayor in a meeting two weeks ago, uh, what is Energy for London? And I told them the truth is I only really set it up just to piss off Boris. You know, are, are people still installing solar on their on their houses, on their businesses? What, how, how's it going? Well, I think the stats clearly show that um, installations have uh, fallen off the roof, if that's uh, the right phrase. Uh, <laughs> yeah. oh. But... Um, <laughs> So clearly there are some challenges, but interestingly, I think the solar manufacturers and solar installers have been uh, you know, quite realistic, knowing full well that the, the high levels of support no, subsidy for solar meant that you had this boom. And uh, not surprisingly, sometimes after the boom, you have a bust. It wasn't helped, though, that the actual policy framework, the mechanism set by government to support solar, were just so erratic. They kept changing things on an almost quarterly basis. That's not the way in which you want to actually bring forward a new technology uh, into a country. So, uh, yes, we've had a boom. Yes, we are having very difficult times at the moment. And there are some more difficult times to come ahead because, as you guys probably know, the feed-in tariff mechanism will end at the end of March 2019. Oh, oh, I want to interrupt for a second. Oh, God, it's so like you. What's a feed-in tariff? Ah, see, I was, yeah, I thought you might ask this. Yes. Right, okay. Uh, are you going to put the timer on? Is this going to be a 30-second challenge? Go. So if you put a solar panel on your roof, it generates some electricity. And each unit of that electricity you generate, you get paid for. And the feed-in tariff describes how much money you get for that electricity. Um, if you generate some electricity that you don't use then you can send it back to the grid and you get paid a different amount of money for that. And that is actually the feed-in tariff. But generally, it's a system where people get paid for creating green electricity. Why do you just say that then? You didn't need 20 seconds. You could just have said... Because <laughs> I was looking at the time in front of me and I thought, I've got loads of time left. I'll, I'll so use it a, up. It's a subsidy that you get for bunging, in this case, solar on your roof. That's all you had to say. Why don't you say that? <laughs> it's not that funny, really. <laughs> As you guys probably know, the feed-in tariff mechanism will end at the end of March 2019. So we've got some more pain ahead. But I step back and look at this saying, does Seoul have a future? Well, clearly it does. And we're seeing that all around the world. Are there challenges? Yes, there are. But there are also huge opportunities, which we've only just started, uh, bringing that trinity of projects together, which is solar with storage and electric vehicles. We're going to see more and more and more of this. And the interesting thing about working with community groups, as I do, is that, that you know there are individuals, groups out there, who are really innovative about trying to knit these technologies together. And if they're doing it, many, many other people as well are doing it. We've only just seen the start. Yeah, my name's Howard Johns. Um, I do various things. I'm passionate about community energy. I currently manage 400 megawatts of solar across the UK as an O&M provider. And I, uh, I wrote a book called Energy Revolution, your guide to making it happen, to inspire people to get involved with the energy transition. So, Howard, we worked on a few things a few years ago, uh, which were things going wrong in policy terms. Yeah. Um, when the government were 
were gnarling things up, basically. And I mean, what happened to you? What happened to the company that you were involved in? At the time? Yeah, so so um, yeah, I was chairing the trade body, and I sort of spearheaded the campaign to try and stop the government cutting the support mechanisms for solar at the time. Um, I, I always feel like we, we, we sort of won the battle on some level, but when you're fighting government, you can't actually win the battle because they're going to destroy you anyway. So, you know, we won in the media, we won in the high courts, but they still they still managed to basically kneecap an industry that was growing. So my story, I, I set up a solar company in 2002, and I doubled it every year for 10 years. Um, uh, up to the point, so in about year eight, the feed-in tariff came in. We just continued doubling as normal. Um, in about year 12, the government had introduced the feed-in tariff and then rapidly the support mechanism for solar and then rapidly cut it, which meant that suddenly I had all these people. I had eight offices across the UK and 100 people working in my company. Um, and suddenly there was no market anymore and we crashed down and, and, and you know no one was buying solar for a good while. Um, so, so to put that in, in layman's terms, it made sense for lots and lots of people to buy solar because they could get paid a lot for the, gen- the energy they well, generated. Yeah, I mean, and then that, that no longer made sense. Is that why the market? Yeah, that's, cru- that's the crux of it. So the, the government, so previous to, the, to these support schemes, we were growing a very rapid business anyway, rap- rapidly growing a business anyway. They bought in the, f- the support schemes. Then suddenly we went from 400 companies to 5,500 companies in about four months. You know, there was a massive explosion wow. of solar across the UK. We went from you know maybe ten thousand installed systems to a million systems in about four or five years. You know, so incredible for solar, a really great story. But when they decided to to turn the tap off, all of those five and a half thousand companies, pretty much, bar about two hundred, crashed, and they all the investment that went into them was was gone. And my company, sadly, was one of those. So thirteen years work for me. Um, was 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 down the pan basically. So it's very tempting to go, oh, government aren't they bastards, right? Which is kind of what <laughs> one or two people in that room have been saying. But like, I, I want the devil's advocate position. So why, what was their reason for doing it? Um, and be as sort of charitable as you can. I'm really interested. Well, you know, as a man know, who the, lost the, his company as a result, the, of what the, the reason, of course, was was about public spending, you know, and about not creating a burden on households with the amount of money they put on bills. Now, that's, that's a really nice reasoning, and we all get that. No one wants the fuel poor to be even more you know, impacted by the cost of, uh, of, of bills. The true story behind it, in my opinion, it was all about the incumbents. It was all about their businesses. So you mean like big oil, gas the, companies? Mainly, mean, yeah. mainly the utilities. So if you look at the evolution of solar across the, across the world, mainly across Europe, it starts in Germany, Basically, by the time you reach sort of 20 to 30% renewables on the grid, the incumbent's business models are kneecapped. They don't work anymore. So you, this evening we've heard Eon saying, oh, well, we decided to split our business in half and we put our fossil fuel generation assets in one business and we're moving forwards with energy services and renewables. Yeah, because the other part, stranded assets, they don't make sense anymore. Now, they knew that was coming across Europe. So what they did was do their damnedest in markets like the UK to stop policy making that happen to them again so wow. they had more time to maneuver and is that just are you just being ultra cynical i mean is that no i mean i, I so when i wrote my book i interviewed um, politicians around the world i interviewed pioneers around the world actually as well because what i wanted to do is tell lots of really good positive news stories but the, the the one really interesting thing for me was interviewing politicians in the uk um advisors to deck and this sort of stuff and ministers as well who who basically said the utilities know that their business is over 
They know that decentralized energy is the way forwards. They know that they've got 10 years at best, but they're playing for 20. You know, and that's what this is about. It's much easier to kneecap the, you know, the, the, the challengers to buy yourself a bit of time. Now, Eon are sat on the panel as the up-and-coming great big solar company, you know, and all the, all the little, little guys who actually made it happen are out of business. You know, that's what this story is really about. So this stuff really works? Certainly does. Oh, well, lots of luck! Oh. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm. My name is Danny Green. I'm the director of advocacy and new markets at the Solar Trade Association. So keen listeners will have noticed uh, that the background has changed. Uh, we've come inside. There is a young person's trendy DJ playing young person's trendy <laughs> music. Why are we inside? Yeah. Uh, is this where I have to confess my phobias? Yes, you do. <laughs> I hate heights. And we're and right at the top of the um, GLA bauble. And, and you work in solar, which is about putting things on roofs, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, well, thank you for talking to us. Your, your job, I guess, is to effectively say to everybody why solar is brilliant and we should do more of it uh, but we've been at an event this evening where there have been a few people talking about how difficult things have been so where where are things at where is solar and what what's your feeling about the future um, things are definitely very difficult at the moment i mean deployments at a seven year low um, the solar farm market has pretty much halted um, we're very worried about commercial rooftops because of business rates um, but there are some really good vital signs underneath the surface. So if there's a, a bubbly, happy spirit here tonight, that's because everyone in the industry knows what's coming. And it's also because you've dished out some free drinks. Okay, I mean, that, right, there <laughs> that is helps, that. right? <laughs> there is that. So why is that, why is that bubbly spirit here? What, what is coming? Why, why the optimism? Well, because we're so close to being subsidy-free. And actually, you have got some markets now that can be built without subsidy. So um, I was just talking to a guy who's stacking up 11 subsidy-free solar farms for one local authority in the UK. I mean, they're slightly ahead of the industry, but I think you're going to see that market start to take off next year again in the UK. So, oh, oh, hello, me again. Oh, hi. 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 Pleasure to see you, as Good. always. I'd love to say I hate to interrupt our guests, but I don't, because uh, <laughs> I love the sound of my own voice. Everyone is very upset, have you noticed, about some cuts mm. that the government did to solar. Yes. They're very upset about it. Seems to have caused a kerfuffle. So government uh, gave massive great subsidy to people to put a thing on their roof. So generous that loads of people went and put it on their roof. Yes. Which so meant subsidy did exactly <laughs> what it was designed to do. And then they said, oops, we appear to have accidentally got people to do the thing we wanted them to do. Yeah. We better stop them doing it right now immediately straight away. Now, people are saying uh, the government did cuts. Well, yes. But what they mean is it was the Tories, yes. right? Is that what they mean? And is there something different about the way that the Conservatives think about solar panels to everyone else? And if the Conservatives hadn't been in power, what sort of solar industry might we have now? Um, yes. I mean, I, I think the way that they went about things was incredibly damaging. Um, actually, if you look at surveys, Conservative voters are big fans of solar. It's their most popular technology. Um, it's, it's the sort of typical weird split you get between average Tory voter but the Tory party itself. And you get this rather sort of, um, how do I put it? Um, Gittish? Um, <laughs> well, you just get these very 
um, old-fashioned and um, sort of bizarre attitudes from a certain number of backbench Tories that unfortunately can dominate. I mean, you see it on Brexit, same thing for wind power, yeah, it's exactly the same thing. Um, and I think for solar, it's... I think also, if I'm honest, I think there's an element of briefing behind the scenes that we don't see. Um, I think there are some incumbents that, in fact, I know there are some incumbents that brief some very unhelpful stuff about solar. And so I think there is a conversation behind the scenes we don't see that is pretty damaging for us and that we're having to work against. Well, I learned a new phrase last week. Uh, being a social media fan, you kind of pick these things up on Twitter. So the new phrase I learned last week was big dick energy. <laughs> so I think there's an element of ministers. Is that and Dong's rebrand? That's but. Dong's <laughs> rebrand. Um, so I think there's an element of big dick energy in this. It's, you know, who wants to go and see poor Mrs. Miggins' house with a bit of insulation in it and a solar panel up on the roof and her small kind of hovel when you can go and deal with all the big guys and cut the ribbon around an absolutely huge nuclear power plant like Hinkley and talk about all the jobs and the infrastructure when... Uh, when actually, you know, one of the biggest infrastructure projects are things like energy efficiency, retrofit, smart meters, all the things that aren't immediately obvious because they're either on roofs or under pavements or in somebody's house. There's just huge potential there. Uh, but, um, yeah, ministers still seem to be uh, much more confident in generating a kilowatt hour of electricity rather than saving a kilowatt hour of energy. Okay, my name is George Goudsmit, I'm from Holland, and I run a company called AES Solar. George, you've been at this game for a while, yes? Personally, I've only been in it for 29 years, but the company has been in it for 40, 39 years. In We're celebrating our 40th birthday ne next year. So in that time, when the company started, and even when you first got involved mm. in solar, you must have thought that by the year 2018 everything would be solar. So there'd be solar on every roof and we'd all be flying around in solar cars. So are you a bit disappointed that we're not? A little bit, because I joined the company, of course, in 89-90 and I expected it to happen in 91-92. So it, <laughs> it is taking its time. And how do you kind of keep going through booms and busts and optimism and pessimism? And how are you, have you found yourself on the verge of giving up at any point in the yeah, last week? Yeah, a few times, but then I'm so much... Uh, convinced that it is the only way. It's such a logical thing to do. Here's this sun that is shining in one way or another every single day. It has a capacity, you know, these, these statistics that if you have one mile or, or ten mile by ten mile piece of ground in the middle of the Sahara, you, can, you have enough electricity for the whole world. Um, I always remember that and I will always be convinced that solar is, is the best way of going forward. PV is a wonderful technology um, and it will only get better. You know, it is ever since we started, which is now eight years ago with PV, um, the, 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 the modules have improved. So if we were interviewing you in 10 years' time, what do you think we'll be talking about? What do you think will have happened? We will probably be talking about exactly the same thing, only we oh. would be... 
um, better organized, we would have been better financed, our services would have been more streamlined. Um, in 10 years time, the panels will be better organized, they will be more powerful, uh, so we don't have to do these big installations anymore. We can do three or four panels and achieve the same as we do now with 12 or 14 panels. Um, the clients will be better or better informed. It, it, the, the, the builders, they're still, the majority of the builders still don't know what it is all about. They, they, they put, uh, um, builders put solar panels on because it ticks a box. They don't care, even if it is on a north-facing roof, which is really very sad. It's very saddening. So we, we will be spending more and more time on educating professional people. Hi. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, what? No, it's all right. It's just some computer data I've got to put into a program. It's very complicated. Well, yeah, it does look difficult, but it's not a problem. I'm Polly Billington. I'm the director of UK 100, which is a network of UK cities committed to 100% clean energy by 2050. So we're here talking about solar. And I think of solar and I think of big fields in Cornwall and Devon um, and the odd sheep, but not cities. So a hundred cities, presumably quite a lot of them are doing solar. And and what does it look like? How how does it work? We've got 89 local authorities. The hundred stands for 100% clean rather than 100 uh, 100 cities. But we've got 89 local leaders, which actually includes some county councils as well as um, all of the big cities. Um, And yeah, solar is definitely part of the mix on this. And partly because there has been a long drive um, from the introduction of the feed-in tariffs, which happened about 10 years ago, when you actually got paid for generating electricity on your own roof. Having that feed-in tariff at a certain rate meant that actually housing associations started putting solar panels on their roofs. Council okay. homes started getting solar panels on their roofs. It started to make sense to put them on leisure centres, right? So once you get a certain amount of scale, then some of the things that are really scary for local authorities, like risk, how much are they going to have to shell out, how much of the money they're going to get back, is it going to work, is it going to be a white elephant, are they going to get attacked by the Gazette? All of those things start to become less of a worry because... You've got, like, for example, the brilliant Friends of the Earth um, campaign on uh, schools running on sun, right? That was a really good thing because it was done where people who, were, who had the opportunity to be able to campaign on it, be that local councillors and MPs, could say, we want our schools to run on sun. Now, most schools are actually going to have too many other things to worry about, particularly since austerity kicked in, which, let's be honest, is now eight years of that, to say, oh, yeah, no, we're going to do loads of those kind of things. But when they could see that it was something that was helping to tell a story to their to their kids as well to their, the, the school students that helped so a whole load of things meant that actually something that seemed very very niche um, became significantly less scary over a period of time it's not easy for local authorities now because that subsidy has gone away um, but but what's interesting is that the that the technology itself is becoming more interesting to them because if you start integrating it with other technologies which they're interested in, like batteries, like electric car charging points, it starts to tell a story about a place. And that's when local authorities get really excited. So do you see a, a, a future where that vision come, comes to reality? And I've seen, I've seen this depicted where... You know, you have a house or, a, or an estate that has got panels on the roof charging the electric cars in the garages, which are then providing backup 
connect and electricity to the grid and that just it just seems so kind of almost too good to be true but it is a sort of perfect future within our grasp do, do you see that playing out or are you less hopeful i do the one problem with policymakers they go oh isn't this really difficult well you know me energy is <laughs> difficult you know uh having a new nuclear power station is not easy as they're building finding out <laughs> building wind turbines offshore is not easy building huge pylons across areas of national beauty is not easy <laughs> so integrating solar with cars and storage is going to be a challenge but it has been ever thus in the energy market, we just have a new set of challenges with a new set of players. And what policymakers have difficulty in trying to address is shifting from one set of organizations, companies, individuals to another set. And we're in that period of indecision in government at the moment. But I've always believed, which is why I work in this sector, that decentralized energy has a very strong future in the country because it makes it eminently sensible. And so, uh, yep, we're just going through the birth pains of shifting from a heavily centralized system to one which is much more decentralized. So how much is this anything to do with climate change at all? So the UK is fairly weeny in the scheme of things. And even if we went 100% solar right now, wouldn't really matter. So is this about climate change or about something else? Do we have to do solar to fix the planet or do we kind of overstate the UK in the scheme of things a bit? I don't know what 100% solar would mean for a start because I know that solar is actually much better in the UK than people would conventionally think because they think our weather is too bad for it. But if we're going to go 100% clean, we need to go 100% clean energy, which is like a zero carbon by 2050, simply to meet our own obligations under law that we set in order to be able to meet the physics. And I sort of say to people, for far too long, the laws of politics and the laws of physics have been working against each other um, because the laws of politics meant fossil fuels were seen as this amazing thing, which they did. They absolutely transformed our lives and over time made, made us extremely wealthy and liberated loads of people. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to go back to the, the world of living, in a, uh, living by candlelight or in a cave, frankly, or collecting wood, right? So there's definitely that. So climate change is, necess- is, is one of the drivers, but also because that's a driver elsewhere the need for us to wean ourselves off fossil fuels becomes an inevitable economic requirement. Everyone else is doing it. Everyone else is doing it. And okay, that could mean that the the price of coal would plummet, for example. But why are you going to, if the price of coal plummets, people aren't going to dig out of the ground. I mean, when we talk about stranded assets, a couple of people, when I mention stranded assets, people who I would expect, you know, all kind of investor types have said, what do you mean by stranded assets? And I said, well, Horses, when, cow- when cars came along, became stranded assets. Now they're just a niche thing that people do at the weekend. Before that, it was whales. Whales oh, were... I were- in the country. <laughs> <laughs> was that Maggie Thatcher? Did <laughs> that? <laughs> Before that, we were we were catching whales for tallow to be able to keep yeah. our candles going and, and our light, and it was a massive driver of so many of so much of the industrial uh, transformation of our country. Once we've got hold of fossil fuels, we didn't need them anymore, so we left them in the sea. 
Now, obviously, some people kept going hunting them, and we've still got an issue about saving the whale, but it's considerably more safe than it was in the 19th century. Now, we will need to just leave the fossil fuels in the ground, and if they're going to be left, left in the ground, we're going to need to have another form of energy. And we are the country that invented the Industrial Revolution. Yay. We are fossil fuel heavy, right? So shifting things here is probably more difficult than it is anywhere else, really, certainly in comparison to uh, the developed world. So we need to understand quite how big a challenge we've got and not just say, oh, we're rich, therefore it should be easy. It's actually, in some ways, much more difficult, particularly now when other places are leapfrogging over us because they're not hampered by having that kind of infrastructure which depends on oil and coal and gas. I mean, when you, you know, during the boom years, suddenly there were all these small companies doing solar. There are deals popping up. If you went on, on the internet, you would get an advert saying, quick, get oh, solar yeah. now, right? Yeah. And they've all gone. And if you talk to some of those, those people who were doing the, the small installations, you know, they say, oh, well, solar's over. It's, I've moved on to something else. So even if the, the economics start to work, is that a barrier yeah, you've got to overcome it's, it's as well? it's a dangerous meme. It's a dangerous meme. And part of it is the media. The media always likes to focus on the negative. So you always get that, oh, you know, solar's been killed, solar's dead. It's, it isn't true. And the problem is the media doesn't want to know about the good news stories. They like the kind of whizzy tech stuff. But they don't want to hear the basic, you know, bog standard, actually, it stacks up. But that being said, you know, it's becoming very affordable. Um, where we are now, GLA, they've done this big bulk buy scheme and solar's come in at a price of just over £3,000 for a system. That's incredible. I mean, it's so incredibly to, affordable. To put that on your house? Yeah, absolutely, house. Okay. yeah, wow. for a 2.7 kilowatt system. And this is why we're trying to work with local authorities so that they initiate schemes like this so that we can get the mass market back to get those prices down. And I think we're also expecting a bit of a, a crash in solar panel, panel prices just because of the global market. There's going to be a huge amount of slack in the next couple of months coming into the market. So you're going to see prices tumble again. So it's coming at a good time. You know, the, the story doesn't end here at all, you know, and, and actually the real story is around communities and how communities en masse get involved because what we're moving to is a decentralised energy future and, and, and it won't be the eons, to be honest, that own that. You know, the real opportunity is, is, is how we shift the balance of power. So right now you've got six big companies that own the energy system. You know, what, we're, what we'll move to is a, you know, millions of people engaged and owning the energy system. And so communities building and owning their own power stations is the future. And that's you know, what gives me hope. So, Dave, yes. we finished talking to our solar people. Aren't they lovely? They are lovely, and I thought relatively chirpy. Considering their entire industry has had the knackers cut off, <laughs> um, it's amazing what an uh, evening full of free wine will do to people's spirits, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you just stick on a good DJ in the uh, top of the city hall while the sun goes down over London and fill them with champagne, and suddenly <laughs> people feel all right. Here's my question for you, Ol. Question for me? Yeah, my oh, question blimey. for you. Do you think it really matters, one hill of beans whether or not these guys have any jobs or not like matters for them yeah fine but so do it matters for people who work in the oil industry whether they've got jobs or people who work in Lidl so why like why should we in particular care about little country 
little rainy country stuck off to the edge of Europe admittedly not very rainy at the moment relatively small in global terms uh, why does it matter don't make any solar panels why does it matter what happens here that's what I want to know well there's a potential for it to be massive isn't there like that I guess that's one of the things that's always been attractive about rooftop solar in particular a bit like energy efficiency you know if there are, there are roofs everywhere yes. there are houses that need insulating everywhere you, you can make that a massive industry with lots of small businesses that operate everywhere and that that could just be a brilliant thing because obviously their product is something that is inherently good for the planet. Why why not just max out that potential? So I think it's yeah. not going to fix climate change though, is it? What these guys do in it? Yeah, here. but you can't. If that's your criteria, no, I'm just you know, what is your one industry in this one co- corner of the world going to fix climate change? That seems a bit of a high bar. <laughs> I mean, I do think it is genuinely exciting the idea that in a few years' time. There aren't big power stations. There's just a waste, a Brexit wasteland. <laughs> yeah, ruled over by the decaying <laughs> corpse of Brexiteers. Exactly, and us with candles yes. made from Brexiteers Tallow. melted down. Yes. Uh, yeah, that and uh, the old household that generates its own electricity, stores it in its electric car. Uh, when it's not in its battery, all that sort of stuff, you know, works on a street level. I just think that's exciting. That's that's visionary. So yeah, more power to their collective elbow. More power to their power. Yes, very good. Three years ago, it was we had that episode twenty-one talking about how solar had been nosed, and like even then, I think I was thinking, oh, solar industry's been kneecapped a bit, but it's all right because it's all going to happen anyway. And if you'd have said to me we'd be stood up here at the top of this here thing, looking at the whole of London, and there still wouldn't be flying solar planes and everything, <laughs> you know, I tell you, it's all just the future. Everyone's like, solar's the future. Trust me, it's the future. It's about to happen. It's the future, and they've been saying that for as long as I've been in this game for, and uh, you know, it's great to hear that stuff's on the cusp but someone stuck their hand up in the panel thing that we were in and said yeah but we kind of need it now (laughs) big time big time now and I just it's just depressing it just worries me a bit I guess that like okay the government definitely hasn't helped but at the same time like oh can't we have it all just a little bit quicker please Ol? okay I will make that happen I promise you that in three, another three years' time, when we're doing episode 232... Good maths. Yeah. <laughs> R- wrong maths, because you missed out the... Uh, that that would be... A b- anyway, carry on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that we will be staring out at a cityscape of London where every available space is, is uh, generating solar. And that, to be honest, that is uh, exciting stuff, because if you get to the stage where we're not actually talking about panels, we're talking about windows that can turn the light into electricity, then that stuff's that's like... That's the future. That's cool, right? So if that doesn't happen, you will get down on your hands and knees in a Peterborough United shirt oh. and you will eat grass oh. from your local park until oh. you are sick. You are on thin ground, Sunny Jim. <laughs> so that is just about it for another episode of Sustainable. That is 116 in the can. I don't think we've wrapped up an episode whilst a majestic sun sets behind the Dome of St Paul's Cathedral in our line of sight before. You know, that's that's not bad, is it? It's not bad, it's no. It's quite romantic. Yeah, that's the listener. You Everyone just else to... is cleared off. It's yeah. just me and you up here. Yeah, stop. stop. Put the mic down. Stop it. <laughs> Get off and stop it. Uh, thank you very much, Ol, for babbling. Thank you to all of the people who we spoke to. Thank you very much to Holly and the Solar Trade Association for making it all work. Thank you, as ever, to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music, which starts, ends and intertwinkles this podcast, and to Arthur Stovall for the logo that so beautifully adorns it. 
Talking of which, merch is edging ever closer. Uh, we've clicked on some things. <laughs> we've exchanged a few emails. I mean, it's, it could it literally couldn't be nearer. It couldn't be nearer unless it was. Yeah. Uh, yes. But there will be. Stay with us. Thank you also to everybody who gives us money through the old Patreon. Uh, you are legends and you are sustaining Sustainable uh, and we are hugely, hugely grateful. Which doesn't mean... <laughs> well, yes, it's coming on to that. If you're one of the people who hasn't given us money... Which is most people. Which is most people. Then you can write that wrong uh, by going to wobblywobblywobbly.patreon.co.uk <coughs> forward slash Sustainable. Yes, and you can get in touch with us and tell us what you thought of this show and the show in general and stuff you want to hear. Uh, we are on Facebook, just search Sustainable. We are on the Twitter at the Babble Wagon, and you can drop us an email, as so many people do, to hello at sustainababble.fish. We do read all your emails. We may not always reply, but that's just because we've got real jobs and you haven't. <laughs> right. That is, that is just about it. I'm off to go and voltaically solify myself into a neutron. I'm off to rub myself in the government's face until I get cut. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Bye! Bye. <laughs>